going to hit record. Hi guys, it hi guys, it is Jordan from the Apraxia Foundation. It is we are on episode three. It's we're on with Rachel from the PTSD SLP. And as we are going to be talking about trauma informed care. Um, when it comes to the speech language pathology field, what it looks like, how can you be trauma informed as an SSLP? How can a how can apraxia and having that barrier of communication? How can it be relevant to this topic? So we're so excited to get into this topic, and I first wanted to give an introduction as well to what the Apraxia Foundation is as well. So it's with the Apraxia Foundation. The Apraxia Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit that helps individuals with apraxia of speech and other communication-related disorders afford research evidence-based services, and AAC. It is we seek to support people with apraxia across their lifetime. It is we are wrapping up our speech therapy and AAC grants on on October 1st. So it's we are so excited to be able to grant funds to families in need. And you can check us out at the apraxiafoundation.org. Work. And it is to introduce myself right, right quickly. It's my name is Jordan Levin. I'm founder and president of the Apraxia Foundation. I'm also from the blog called Fighting for My Voice, where I talk about my real life experiences growing up and living with apraxia of speech and racial. I'm going to give the floor to you. So I'll let you introduce yourself. Thank you, Jordan. My name is Rachel Arshambo, also known as the PTSD SLP on Instagram. Um, I am a speech pathologist. I'm in my eighth year working in the school system. I've worked in a couple other settings as well. This year and the last few years, I have been a speech language pathology program specialist. So I work for Broward County Public Schools and I support 40 high schools this year in our county. It's the sixth largest county in the country. So it's a big, big county, 40. 40 I high schools. about you. It's 40. Yes. It's a big, big district. So I really love this position. I'm not working directly with kids in this setting, but I'm supporting the SLPs at all of those high schools, which could be anywhere from zero to five SLPs and all of the students that work there. So I'm really loving this position. What got me into talking about PTSD and trauma altogether was in my second year as an SLP, I experienced a traumatic event at work that was nationally publicized. It was a very big event that still is talked about a lot. Um, and I needed a way to work with myself who had just undergone trauma, my students who had just undergone trauma, an entire community who had just been through a big trauma. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to care about speech when people didn't feel safe. And, and when I started Googling how to work with students who have had trauma, I found trauma-informed care. Mm -hmm. So as I started researching more and more, I kind of realized that speech pathologists really aren't trained in this matter. It's been trauma-informed care as a concept has been around for over 40 years, but mm -hmm. we have not been trained at all in it. Some courses, colleges now are introducing it, but mm -hmm. uh, there's a few of us trying to teach other SLPs about trauma-informed care and how to work with populations who have gone through trauma and people who we don't know what their trauma history is and still be trauma-informed for them. Wow, wow, wow. And it's, um wow. And it's something to that Something too that I have to say is that I, something too that I have to say is that I love how you took something that can be as painful, such as a tra, as a traumatic event that you went through, and you kind of turned your pain into a purpose. That's what I have called when I, you know. It is when I talk about my life experiences with apraxia, some that were traumatic for me. Um, it's I know that I have my mentor that will come to me and be like, 
is you turned your pain into a purpose and that's beautiful. So it's, I just wanted to applaud you for that. It's, I think that that's awesome. And I think it's awesome what, what you are doing. I think it's awesome that you are in, I think it's awesome that you are in forming others about trauma and informed care and about PTSD. And as an over general, as a general overview for people who are watching, can you kind of give a definition or a breakdown of what PTSD is and kind of what PTSD is not? I think Ooh. touching on both of those would be beneficial. Sure. So PTSD, I think a lot of people, their first image that pops into their brain is like veterans that mm. they think of these war movies that are everywhere and constant, constantly coming out that a soldier or a former soldier, a veteran is walking through a street and a, the sound of a car backfires and that puts them ducking behind a car and hiding. That's what most people think of when I ask them to tell me what is PTSD. Mm -hmm. And that is definitely part of it. But PTSD is a mental health condition that's triggered by a an event. Um, it could be several events. It could be continuing events um, like bullying. It could be over time. Um, and it could be from experiencing it or witnessing it, or even sometimes like hearing about it. So symptoms could be flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, um, and uncontrollable thoughts about the event. And then mm -hmm. for a clinical diagnosis of it, the DSM-5 is how we rate all these mental classifications. And there are, you have to have a certain amount, like four out of five of those. So these intrusive thoughts, mm -hmm. um, what we find though is, is, especially in the veteran community, they don't like post-traumatic stress disorder. They don't like the disorder part of it. Really? And the reason that they say that is because they're like, with what we've been through, it's not a disorder. This is exactly the level of fear we need to have to keep safe, right? Ah. So it's a really interesting concept. So interesting concept. I am an adult with PTSD. I've been diagnosed with PTSD after a tra traumatic event. And how that looks for me personally is intrusive thoughts, anxiety, um, making myself not go to certain places because I don't feel safe. Um, so that's an avoidance, a coping strategy. It's not a helpful coping strategy in some ways um, because we want to be able to access all the environments that we want to go to. Mm -hmm. So po post-traumatic stress disorder does not happen to everyone that experiences a trauma. Just because you've experienced a traumatic event does not mean you have PTSD. Some mm -hmm. people can experience a very traumatic event and not have PTSD as a re result. So I know, especially after um, the trauma that I went through out of school as an SLP, um, we had a, a military teacher who teaches like ROTC. And I remember him coming in after the traumatic event and just wanting to know a list of all the students who had been diagnosed with PTSD so that he could talk to them better. And I came up to him after and I was like, you need to treat everyone at this school, the staff, the, like the students, every single person as though they've experienced a trauma. The classification does not matter. But when you come from the military, the classification does matter because there are certain steps that they need to follow. Mm -hmm. But in the general population, trauma-informed care, we should be talking to everyone as though they possibly have sustained some sort of trauma or if they haven't sustained some sort of trauma, we could still be t talking to them in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary harm. That's the gist of post-traumatic stress and trauma. That's a really good point. That's a really good point that you had made, made that it is we should talk to every person like they have because we never know what a person has been through and it's for a person that's ex and it's for a person that's experienced trauma as well not everybody is open about their his you know about their background about their history and such and I do believe as a person with C PTSD and PTSD that that's an individual choice. It's an individual choice to to choose what you disclose and such. But it 
doesn't mean also, I think on that same topic, a disclaimer that I would like to give is that it's a person shouldn't have to give their history or give their background to for a person to care as you were saying that, you know, we need these certain names of people. Now that was a really kind act. I think it was meant for kindness and such and being like, I want to know these people. But I also think as you were saying, like, you know, every person should be treated as if you know, with a trauma-informed lens, but then also too, it is little things like that. Even, even for a person to walk up, walk up to you when you're not expecting it, and saying like, "Yes, I'm so sorry for what you went through," that can trigger a person as oh, well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's really so. There's a few different lens that I can see that you were touching on there. One being trauma-informed, but two like there's the chance of a person getting re-triggered. And I think it's important to allow the individual to disclose at their own will as much as they want to, or as little as they want to. Absolutely. And thank you for bringing up those points. And that's when I'm talking to speech pathologists and other related professionals, any service providers, any humans, they're, they're curious. They want to help. Like no one goes into these professions to actively cause harm. Sometimes that happens just, just because, and if they're not using a trauma informed mindset, the risk is higher. But when you, um, when you go into these professions, you want to help and asking these questions are just a way for that individual to place judgment on whether a trauma is valid in their eyes or not. Mm -hmm. we need to take away from. So for example, if I'm treating a child who the parent tells me that they're having such a hard time with their parents' divorce Mm -hmm. and they're traumatized by it. And you as a professional go, that's not trauma. I went through that. I'm fine. Or there's tons of other kids that go through trauma. They're fine. Divorce is not a trauma based on their own life experiences. We cannot do that. We cannot place judgment on another person's trauma because it is an individual's experience of that trauma. So when we get these students on our caseloads and we say, we see on their reports have sustained a traumatic event, and then you read what it is, or you hear about what it is and you go, oh, it's not that bad. That's not a big deal. They should be acting better than this. We, we can't place those judgments. It, it's an individual's experience of, of an event. Right, right, right. And it's too, and it's too, like, there's so many different factors that type into that experience. And it is with that lived experience of, it is what you felt, it is what you saw, it is what you heard. And there's so many different senses during what a person goes through, whatever that person goes through that is based off of their own life experiences as you were touching on, but not a different person. So it is with, so it is with that being said, it is for our SLPs that are watching, that are treating people with apraxia of speech or other communication disorder, speech disorders. What would, what would you say if you could give like three tips to be better trauma informed. I don't know if that's a too low of a number because I know when I'm passionate about a topic, I'm like, that's a low number. I could list 20, but if you could give them three tips on how to be better trauma informed or anything like that, do you have any tips? I do. So typically when I present on trauma informed care, I talk about the six pillars of trauma informed care, which are safety, trust and transparency, collaboration and mutuality, empowerment and choice, cultural, historical, and gender issues, and peer support and mutual self-help. So when I'm analyzing how I did in a session or how I'm going to work with a specific student, I want to make sure I'm giving all of those pillars. My number one pillar is safety. Safety is the number one thing. So when we're teachers or taught... Teachers are taught about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is that basic physiological needs like food, shelter, Mm -hmm. water need to be met 
before you can work on academics. Like you have to make the bottom of the pyramid whole, um, sleeping. So when I'm in a high school and we're not happy with our kids for sleeping when it starts at like seven o'clock in the morning and we automatically assume that they've been up all night playing video games. Mm-hmm. What if they're working? What if they work because they have to, you know, what if they have to help support their family and they only have a little bit of sleep? They're not going to be learning if they're tired. So let them sleep a little bit. So safety is my number one. We want to make sure our students, our clients feel safe, feel emotionally and physically safe with us. In my case of where my trauma existed, I could promise them physical safety or emotional safety all day long in my opinion, but it's up to them to decide if they feel safe on that campus with me in my room with another teacher. There's so many aspects of it. So Mm -hmm. think, are you providing a safe atmosphere? That's my number one recommendation. Mm -hmm. Number two is giving choice. Choice contributes to fostering trust and transparency with a client. So if you have a, a student, a client who is so refusing speech services, ask them to participate in in what the services look like in the skill building. And even if they want to participate in speech at all, that might be something that they have to come to their own conclusions of later on. Um, Giving them choice is, is treating them like a human and not just saying you need to do this because you need to sound better and sound better, meaning what I picture someone sounding like. Guys, I'm getting so many chills right now. I don't mean to end. No, please. As I like really don't mean to interrupt you, I promise. But like it is as a, but as as a child and as I would be within these different speech sessions and such, like I was most of the time, I wasn't given a choice. So I was typically made on an average day during a, speech session I was made to do drills and repetition over and over and over and of course it was difficult because I have a praxia that's going to be difficult but see but I see but I didn't want to engage with them after a certain time and I would like literally it's one time I hit under the table because I was like I don't want to anymore. Like yeah. my, cause it's with, cause it's with my brain. My brain had a point because with me, with, with a apraxia, it was common for people with apraxia is that we have mental exhaustion and mental fatigue. And for me personally, after so long of talking, my brain physically feels sore. So it's really important that when I sense that my brain needs a break, that I'm like, I'm going to give you yes. a, and I'm going to let you, you know, do your own thing now. Um, but it's, I didn't want to participate after a while, but my SLP would keep on con, con consistently saying like, you have to, you have to. And I think that it's really important to give kids and give teens and adults with apraxia options during that time and saying, okay, as we can stop this activity, it is do you want to do X, Y, or Z, because that's going to give the health, the chance for healthy autonomy. Um, So I just thought about that during our talk. Totally. And that plays into both safety and choice. So when I picture you hiding under a table, like Mm -hmm. what was the relationship with the SLP before? And when I talk about trauma-informed care, I talk about the systems in place above us need to be trauma-informed for me as an individual to be trauma-informed. So when you go to a private practice, you are at the mercy of the billing system, the insurance, right? So a lot of bosses are like, you have 30 minutes for a session. You need to pack in so much data and do all this stuff. Where's the time for rapport building? Yeah. Did you already feel safe with that SLP? So that is my first priority when I get a new client is not automatically going to drills, not automatically going to the data of just like spending time together, going on a walk, go like mm-hmm. trying to build that relationship so that they're able to trust and feel that I'm being transparent with them. So these are the suggestions I would have of just, we want to make sure safety is a number one priority and all of the other pillars of trauma-informed care 
in my belief, play into safety. That's like, that's so, so, that's so important for parents and for professionals to know all of those different things that can definitely, that can definitely contribute to what we are talking about with trauma-informed care with PTSD and such. And it's, I had really loved as well. I really, it is, it's, I really, it's, of course, I loved the topic that I interrupted <laughs> because I was like, that hit home for me. I, it's, I was like, I need to say something here, but I really do love, it's what you were touching on, like the basic needs. Um, and the basic needs and the feelings of safety and that safety isn't a want but it's a need because this is what so many parents come to me and ask me about it's if what do they do it's if their child's refusing sessions what if they're like hiding hiding a session I'm like well, they're hiding because they don't want to be seen. If they're hiding because they don't want to be seen, they're sensing a threat. What's the threat? Because I really try to, when I talk to parents, I really try to address the root. And I'm trying to get to the root because I know if we can get to, to the root of why a child might be doing X, Y, Z, or why they might be displaying quote unquote refusal behaviors, which is not my favorite term because there can be a few different things that are happening there. So one for people with apraxia, it's very common to have sensory difficulties, sensory processing and such. And I know as a kid, like mine would either be one because of my apraxia, I wasn't able to communicate what I wanted to say. So people thought that I was refusing when I wasn't, like I couldn't say what I wanted to. It was yeah. not a choice. That's, that's the whole, mm. the word refusal. Mm. It, people say that it's a choice, but when I talk about trauma and, and PTSD, your body is not given a choice, you know, that, that overwhelming, overwhelming need to feel safe. So when they're hiding it, it's, oh, he's refusing. It's trauma informed care is a mindset shift of what else is going on. How can I make this child feel more comfortable? How can I make them feel more safe? Are there any triggers in this room? Am I causing any stress on this child? We need to, that's what we need to do as professionals is change that mindset by saying they're doing this on purpose. They're trying to manipulate me. They're badly behaved. They're all these things when it may not be a choice. Right, right, right. Because it may not be a choice, but two, it's really putting a lot of blame on a child. Yes, yes. And it's that's what kind of gets me at times. And that's what gets me when I am talking about me as a child, how people would be like, oh, like he is re, oh, like he is refusing to do his work. Like he is just lazy. Like he's just being like shy as so you should make him talk. Like I was a child. I was literally a child who was being treated really like I was not even a human at, yep. at times as I was treated like I just needed to go, go, go. And I needed to talk as quickly as possible. And I needed to get talking as soon as I can when it's a, there's a few different things that pop into my mind for that. So one, the first thing that I needed, as we've been talking about within this pod, pod, podcast, and what's a, and what's a theme is the feeling of safety is you need to feel safe, but it's really difficult for a person with apraxia. It's really difficult to feel safe when one, you know what you want to say, but physically it won't come out. And that can just naturally for me personally, from the first lived experience, it's your body can definitely get this feeling of tension because there's this tension that contributes to it because for people with apraxia as they try to move their tongue, lips and jaw, because we actively try to move our tongue, lips and jaw as the same effort as any other person. 
but we're going to have at times how I would describe it is that pushback where our mouth is like, sorry, your brain didn't send down that signal. I can't move like, like that. So like there's this halt. So there's like a wall up. So it is when any person hits a wall, if you hit a wall, of course, you're going to have that pressure. And my dog just, my dog like that. That is so funny. Ziggy. But it's like, you're going to have that pressure and you're going to sense that something is wrong. I mean, it's just like what my dog did. My dog heard, heard that he's like, something's wrong. So when I feel that I get that sort of, sort of pressure, I get that tension. And that tells my body that I'm not safe. And that can be just one of the ways that apraxia affects the person from feeling safe. I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you for another three hours about this. <laughs> I, I, uh, like just thinking about apraxia and you were mentioning how there's like a brain fog aspect of it because it's, it's taxing. There's a lot that you're awesome. trying to focus on, uh, on top of the content that you're trying to um, come out with. So mm -hmm. I think of these children that are put into, you know, school for eight hours a day they're masking essentially the entire time they're there or in a job setting that that's so much brain power that a neurotypical person does not have to utilize and can just carry on their day. I know for me as a person with ADHD and PTSD, the second I come home from school nap time, like for one hour, at least then I'm up till two o'clock in the morning doing the rest of what I need to do. I have different hours than people, but I do feel like I'm essentially using most of my energy to stay alert because that's one of the aspects of PTSD that I'm hyper vigilant. Absolutely. Um, so I'm utilizing all this energy that other people don't even understand that I'm utilizing. So as a professional, as a parent, when we're looking at our kids with any of these diagnoses, it's important mm -hmm. to have this trauma informed view of just being like, they're carrying a lot. They're carrying a lot and expanding a lot of energy. And we need to be mindful of that and say that, yes, they're short-tempered right now, but are they also exhausted? Like we have to be taking okay. these things into account. It is a, it is a, exactly. It is absolutely, it is, cause it's for me personally, it is the act of talking as it is, as you've probably saw, like I like move like my eyes a lot and such, cause I'm trying to really focus on what I'm trying to say. And as that's what we have definitely seen for people with apraxia. And as I've talked with other adults with apraxia, many adults with apraxia mask and they mask, even if they're not in any way, they don't feel any sort of bad way about their apraxia, like they're fine with it. They've accepted it. They've come to terms with it because that is something that people with apraxia do struggle with is a, is a accepting their diagnosis as they reach like older ages, because there's such a theme of it being talked about within the childhood years, but the supports really drop, drop off after childhood. So there can be, you know, a pretty rough transition there, but it can be hard for them to accept it. So when Honestly, my ADHD got me right there. Oh, it happens to me all the time. All the time. It was, we were talking about how, oh, the mental energy. And we were talk, talking about mass. Yes. So it is when, so there's adults with apraxia that, as I was saying, even if, oh, bingo. I love when this happens. I get Yay. so excited when the attention span like comes back. Cause I'm like, that's what I was talking about. You saw okay. my face light up. That's so I did. <laughs> but it's with, but it is with an adult with apraxia, they might feel, feel the need to max because if we don't put in that energy, then our speech is going to be different. Our speech is going to sound different and other people might not be able to understand us. Personally, for me, when I'm not projecting my voice, you cannot hear me. So I used to talk to the point of a whisper, but I couldn't help it. It wasn't within my control. So now I'm able to within the speech therapy practice, but that's not saying that 
when I do use this much energy that, you know, it isn't exhausting for me because it is absolutely exhausting for me. And it is, I have certain people is if I'm on a call and I've been on calls for like the whole day and such, and it's like, let's like, and like, let's say it's like 5 p.m. Like I'm usually, I'm drained and you're going to see me, like my face is going to be more blinker. I'm going to just not be as energetic, of course, because it is taking that much energy and people will tell me, oh, it's you need a cup of coffee, it's you need mm-hmm. this and that. And people really do mean well. And I think that some people just know that I love coffee. So they're like, oh, like it's I'm going to do well and such, but it's really not that is that my brain is tired and my brain needs totally. rest. That just reminded me of, of a third suggestion is just, I talk about language changes. So I, I talk about all the time, people's intentions being good with things, especially um, when you're saying that your feelings were hurt in some way that people say, oh, well, that wasn't my intention. My intention was good. And we're like, we know this. But there are certain things that we can try to say to remove the risk of causing additional harm. One of those suggestions is just removing violent language as someone who experienced a violent event. There are so many phrases of just like figurative language that are grotesque. They're, they're very visual and in education, I don't think they should be used in a lot of other situations. I don't think should be used, but I also, when I I was thinking about coming on this podcast, I know one thing that I hear Ronda Rousey had apraxia or has apraxia and yeah. I think well-intentioned SLP go, SLPs go, look at this successful person who sounds perfect to our eye, right? I think we need to watch what we say as professionals to parents, to children, and say, this is our goal of, of essentially perfection. Of this is our gold star, a person that doesn't sound like they have a press yes. anymore should yes. actually be our goal. And, exactly. you know, it is for me personally, it's no, that shouldn't be our goal. It is our one goal. And my number one goal is that I want the person to be happy and safe. That's number one. I want the person to, to be happy and safe, but not happy in the sense that they're happy all of the time, because there can be an un realistic expectation that humans are supposed to only have one human emotion and it is supposed to be happy. Oh. Uh, I talk, I talk about this all the time. I do. I talk about this all the time. And I, it went, Oh, hi Ziggy. <laughs> when you were just talking to me about like your face and masking, that is something that I actually got in trouble with a lot. And I have been known my entire life to have RBF. Right. Uh-huh. And <laughs> it being an SLP, I think they expect me to be this bubbly, happy, colorful morning person. And I remember several supervisors told me I looked like I didn't want to be there. And that was just my face at rest at like being calm. Mm -hmm. So then what ended up happening was for the next several months of an externship, Mm -hmm. I had to mask in my face of this like happy smile all the time. And that was mentally taxing that I can't concentrate as hard on the things that I need to do in speech because I'm worrying about my face looking pleasant to other people. So these are things that we need to pay attention to. Yes, yes, yes. Cause it's there, um, it is cause it is cause it's there can be for people with a praxia even, it is as, cause it's there can be for people with a praxia even, it's as we are talking about this kind of topic about like putting on a show, because that's kind of what I think about with that topic. I kind of think about, you know, putting on a show, you want to represent a certain way. And there can be a lot of pressure for people with apraxia as well. And I'll go back to the topic I was speaking about in a little, but um, there can be a lot of pressure for people with apraxia to keep on a brave face over and over. And I know I definitely felt this way. And it's why I got in the word brave I got it in on the back of my left arm because I felt like so much as a child, like I just needed to put on a brave face and I needed to be like, no, like I'm fine. Like I can get through this. Um, Even like with my apraxia, then like with some things that went on medically with me as a child, 
But I think that having to put on that that show and even having to mask, you know, and it is what I've learned from all and is what I've learned from all autistic and die visuals personally is that masking is traumatizing and it can absolutely be traum traumatizing. So it's as we keep on having this conversation, you know, the questions uh, sticks out to me. There's a few questions. One, should people with apraxia, should they feel the need to max? Is there even a should? Is there just, you know, it's up to the individual? And then two, there's a second question that it's when we went to the gold star of apraxia and we talked about Ronda Rousey and like, oh, like Ronda Rousey, you know, she gets into the ring, you know, she can talk really, really fast, but it's something that people don't know that, but, but see, but it's something people don't know that Ronda Rousey wrote in her book is that Ronda Rousey talked about how she would have to like practice those, like those very quick talks and such before the wrestling match i've personally i've never watched wrestling i'm not that kind of dude personally but or person but you know what i mean but um it is what people don't know is that she would have to have to practice it like over and over prior so once again that motor planning so a so it's funny because a because a so it's funny because a essentially everybody is praising her masking. Yes. What is that telling people with apraxia? Oh, it's when you mask. Yay. But if you don't max, what are we telling people when they don't max or when they are not as, you know, they have more difficulties? I, I think that's where the trauma informed nature comes into place about us as providers but also the parents need to help their child advocate for not having to mask all the time because that is mentally taxing so I think that the parents need to be informed of just masking can cause trauma um let the individual decide when they are want to mask um mm. see what that means to them um but I also mm -hmm. as a side note want to validate that sometimes parents of individuals with disabilities do undergo trauma based on like the systems in place. So I'm sure many of them have to fight with school systems of like my child deserves services and they're constantly being told no, and then they're fighting and then there's financial aspects of it. So there are many different things, many different people who trauma affects, but I think masking back mm. to that topic, we, we mm. need to be able to, as the adults advocate for our clients and children, that masking does cause harm in the long run. And they need to be able to choose when they want to mask. Yeah, right, right, right. And it's right. And it right. And it's two, it is one second. I'm sorry, my dog is like, he keeps yeah. on like, flinching on me. I don't know what's, what's wrong, buddy. Come here. Is everything okay? Is everything? I know. Do you want to lay down? It is. I am just going to try to get him to lay down because he seems a little bit like scared. I'm not sure why. Okay. It is your okay. Do you want to lay down? Sit. Oh, such a good dog. It's are you good? Okay, sorry. I just want to be okay now. You're he's fine. He's like, Hi, oh, now I'm gonna hug you. So he's like, I'm happy now. Oh. So as we, so it's we left off on on when people like having the person pick when when they mask. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll dive back into that now. Sorry. You're fine. So it's on that topic, something that I definitely question um, is, of course, for me personally, I question as a person when I should max. And I think that that's something that I would like to touch on because personally, when I feel the need, sorry, just one more second, there's something wrong. You're fine. It's okay. Thank you. Oh, is, oh, it is you hear something upstairs? 
I think they might be moving something up to dares. That's why he's like, do you want to? But so I'm going to see if I have a bone for him to sell. You're fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Ziggy, let's get you a bone, buddy. I got some treats for you. Come on. Thank you. But I'm just going to hand him some treats, right, Narcol? Because I think that's going to help. Because he's happy now. He's like, I sleep good. Good. My dog had his head on my lap at the beginning, but he went to go lay down because he wasn't getting <laughs> anything from me. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to just keep a handful of these. And then reposition my chair, and then we will get back started. It seems like we have around 10 minutes left. Um, okay. Does that sound good? That works for me. Okay, awesome. Gonna set these down and go back to walking. So we're talking about masking okay. So it's on the same topic too. Something that I definitely wanted to talk on is when I personally feel the need to mask. So I personally feel the need to to mask not only if I want a different person to really get a clear like picture of what I'm saying, but too, it's if I sense if a person might be a potential person to not be safe to display speech difficulties to because I've had adults and peers when I was a child I've had a I've had adults and a peers that I've had adults and peers who would ask me questions and although they didn't mean any sort of harm of course just and something that we touched on is just because you don't intend to have harm and your intentions are, are well doesn't mean that they are well and it doesn't mean that they don't call, cause harm but i've also have gotten throughout my life experiences i've gotten a lot of adverse reactions from my speech and from my talking so throughout the years like i built this hyper vigilance of really paying a attention to a to a person's facial expressions and seeing if the facial expressions turn and then if they do that you know i choose if i want to mask if i want to talk to that person and something that i've learned throughout my years of something that i've learned throughout my years of therapy though that i think is important for me to mention is that i question if this is a person I want to talk to but that's not something as a child but it's that's see but that's not something as a child that's not something I ever you know thought of because as a child of course when I'm talking about my own lived experience like um, I could, you know, say some different words when I was eight. I could talk in the sentence structure at 12. 
But as we were talking about prior to our podcast, like going back and forth within the conversational level was really difficult until the age of 22. And even while we we're on this call, of course, like we, I feel like we've like hit on some topics that I do when I talk. I put in a lot of energy. I put in a lot of concentration. Um, I it's I max a max a essentially it's I'm not masking right now because I don't feel safe because I can tell that you are a safe person you are allowing me to take my time you're not rushing me it's when my dog cried you're like you're fine you're fine you you said that twice because you probably sense I was like oh you know sorry but um you know is if I can see those reactions and if I know that the body body language and the facial expressions are not telling me that something could po possibly be wrong, then I'm going to feel safe. But if I sense that a person might have their like facial expressions might turn, like they might, you know, do like a sideways head tilt I saw, trying to like figure it out at times mm -hmm. or Either what I found as well is that the person will try to rush me while talking. And, you know, as an adult on the same topic, what I've learned to do is say it's I have a speech disorder because I can say that now, you know, as a child, I couldn't. But I say that I have a speech disorder and I say it as a blanket, as a blanket statement. So I'm not saying it to explain myself. I'm saying it because other people, at times, other people don't know. But I think that's what I love about this topic of trauma and informed care, because I question on that if we did live in a trauma informed world and within an a and within a, a accessible world, like would that ever even need to be mentioned? Besides, you know, of course, the treatment of apraxia, would that ever get brought up? Totally. I, I think, first of all, thank you for calling me a safe person. And that that's something that I teach on to other people is when you ask teachers if they're a safe person, they automatically say yes. And I think that their answer, answer should be, I don't know. Or maybe to some people, maybe not, because we had that, that feeling, especially after a traumatic event, that they felt that every kid needed to be with them because they provided safety, which is not the mindset to have. You should be like, who is not comfortable in, in my presence? And reflecting, I do a lot of self-reflections on my sessions, on conversations, which is not always the best thing, especially like in, in my personal life that I'm like, are they mad at me? Did I say something wrong? Um, but I think we be doing that constantly. And evaluating, am I providing a safe atmosphere for someone? And a lot of this came from um, being a speech pathologist. And the, a lot of the things you're mentioning, I first worked with people who stutter mm -hmm. and it's a lot of the same techniques of wait time. And I remember in undergrad, one of my professors who I love, she's my mentor, but she told me that I speak way too fast. And I go, me? No, I don't speak fast. <laughs> And it was just from acknowledging that I was like, maybe I do speak fast. Maybe I do need to slow that down. And then it became just like, I had to reflect on that and say, is someone else bringing up something that I'm not noticing in myself? Could I do better in that aspect? So I think that we as adults, providers, parents, whoever, anyone working with children with disabilities, um, and especially ourselves when we're very hard on ourselves, but we need to be reflecting on Am I causing harm to anyone? Am I providing a safe environment? Am I doing things that would actively cause harm? And no one's going to raise their hand and be like, I'm causing harm. Yeah. But the reality is we need to take the baby steps of being like, did that hurt anyone? Did that hurt anyone's feelings? Who would have been affected by that? So those are some things that I always have in mind. But mm -hmm. um, I think we we just need to be aware that people have things going on that we number one, don't need to know. Like, we don't need to know the reasons. We don't need to have people disclose things. And I'm glad that you just say speech dis disorder instead of yes. explaining that, oh, well, what's apraxia? What does that mean? Like, like it, it is, um, it is because I did think at one point that I needed to explain myself. And is that's, 
and it's and it's with the very first therapist I ever worked with for my PTSD. Something that she had taught me is that you don't ever have to explain yourself. Mm -hmm. That you don't ever have to explain yourself. You don't have to give an explanation and such. And it's you're not even owed to tell a person that you have a speech disorder, but it might it might answer the questions they have in their own mind. So at times, if I can tell a person is having those questions, then I'll just go out and say it. But it's not something that I disclose all of the time. I never, within my personal life, I never say a proxia of speech, which is funny because I go online and I'm like, I have a proxia of speech. Yes. See, but like, that's my choice as a person. Mm-hmm. We're what we've been talking about. That's my choice. You know, I get to disclose when I want to disclose versus in my everyday life. It's if a person has questions like, you know, what is your speech disorder and such, like I'm happy to answer. Mm-hmm. I just don't have any hesit- hesitations, but, you know, I just love that. Yeah, that just got me thinking about that. Like I said, I could talk to you about this for for way longer. I think more questions will come up, more experiences, more similarities as just people that fit under the neurodivergent umbrella, that it's people asking us to present a certain way that they would like us to present and then us adjusting to their uh, qualifications, requirements, and it's exhausting. And after this podcast, I will be taking a nap. (laughs) Well, is that like... um... Well, um, well, well, that's really good that you're doing that self care. So it's, I'm proud of you for also taking care of yourself as well. And it's, I'm really, really happy that, and it's, I'm really, really happy that you had this chat with me, that we were able to talk about trauma and informed care, the impacts of apraxia with trauma and then also about PTSD and just as the conversation as well, because we hit on so many important topics that I think parents will love to hear about when it comes to the masking portion. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited for parents to hear this podcast as I just would like to echo my great audience for you coming on the pod podcast for talking about trauma-informed care. So thank you. And it's, we're going to wrap up this podcast, but, um, but as if you want to check out Rachel's social medias, you can find her under PTSD SLP, where she talks about trauma informed care and PTSD, um, as she is a speech language pathologist. And then also it is for the Apraxia Foundation. You can check out our website at the apraxiafoundation.org. You can also check us out on social media platforms under the Apraxia Foundation. And it is prior to October 1st, you can submit your six month application speech speech therapy grant or three month AAC application grant before the deadline is closed. And we would like to thank everybody so much for joining in and we hope everyone has a great day. Thank you.